Our world is in trouble these days as our times of uncertainty continue. In many respects, the COVID-19 outbreak has turned into an unprecedented calamity. Globally, most nations are in a lockdown. Borders have closed, flights have stopped, and commerce has come to a halt. Nationally, we're experiencing the same thing. It's kind of like watching a a slow-moving train wreck where the nation has come to a halt. Slowly but steadily, the outbreak has spread, hospitals fill, and and people are losing their lives. Because of this, economically, things are bad. Stocks have plunged while unemployment has skyrocketed. More people than ever are wondering how they're just going to make rent. But socially, things are truly bizarre. Schools are closed, workplaces shut down, and the daily routine of most has been interrupted. The trial of isolation is taking its toll as friends and family members can't even gather. And then for us in the church, ecclesiastically, there's been an impact. We're heeding the mandate to not gather corporately for a time to help slow the spread of the virus. But this means we're missing out on many important dimensions of our spiritual growth and sustenance. God designed the church and all that goes with it to, to be a, a primary means of our spiritual growth. And so a prolonged period of not gathering can take its toll. So altogether, globally, nationally, economically, socially, ecclesiastically, these are times of, t- uh, times of trouble. Job 5.7 says, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's always true in this fallen world. But we've not seen such a, a widespread global calamity in our lifetime. These are certainly trying times. But how will you respond? Your response to these times will largely be determined by your perspective. That's why last time we we spent our time searching the scriptures to to find an eternal perspective. Scripture gives us God's own perspective on matters of life and death. And if you can simply see things the way God sees them, it will enable you to respond even to calamity with peace and joy and confidence. And that perspective is everything. I mean, just think of the difference between Job and his wife. Trust you all know the story of Job, this man of immense wealth and a full family, but in a moment, in a moment of personal calamity, he lost everything. All of his wealth was erased. His 10 children died. And then he was struck with painful boils. I mean, who's known suffering like that? But when you think about it, though, you realize Job's wife suffered nearly as much, right? She lost all of her wealth, and those were her 10 children too. But as you might know, they had, you know, diametrically opposite reactions. How did Job respond to this time of profound calamity? I'll just read Job 1, 20 through 22. This is Job fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job suffered, but he was equipped with with a bigger perspective. And that enabled him not to curse God, but to bless God, and even to worship in the midst of calamity. But not so for his wife. She too was really suffering. But you might know how she responded. Job 2, 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. 
that Job blessed God, Job's wife cursed God. You know, seeing this life as all there is, she gave up. All the things she was living for were gone. She had no more reason to live. She lost all hope. So you might as well curse God and die. And so it goes for those who are living for things below. But we as Christians, we know that this life is not all that there is. We're living for things above. Our hope and joy, that they're not found in things below, but in Christ. This does not make us immune to calamity. But when it comes, it does mean we should respond entirely different from the world. And notably, as we learned last time, we're not going to lose heart. We're not going to curse God. We're not going to despair. We might suffer. We might hurt. But why why would that make us abandon Christ? Where else would we turn? Only Jesus holds the meaning to life and the answer to death. So in times of calamity, we need to be clinging even more to Christ and our heavenly hope to endure. But that's not the end of the matter. Now, although perseverance is paramount in these times, but still, you know, beyond endurance, how else should we, should we be responding to the times we're living in? Now, the question I've been getting for most Christians is simply, like, what do we do now? How are we supposed to live now? Like, what should we be doing? Is the message simply just hang on for the ride, endure, ride this thing out, and that's it? I mean, that's part of it, but there should be more to our response. You see, though calamity is not good, and to the wise and to the mature and to those with an eternal perspective, it actually presents us with multiplied opportunities for good. It's part of the sovereign might of God to take things that are not good, like like viral outbreaks, and turn them to good. And knowing that, it's only right for us to respond by looking for opportunities to further God's purposes, even in the midst of trials. And just because we're in the valley, that doesn't change our mission, right? As disciples of Christ, we've been given a mission or a purpose with our lives and Just a a little calamity does not change that. What then is our mission? You know, in short, it's to worship, to walk, to witness. Now, primarily, we are to be true worshipers, exalting and enjoying God in all that we do. We're also tasked with growing up in the image of Christ, being conformed to his image. And, And God aims to use us now to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Does that change? Does all that change just because calamity strikes? Do we, do we stop worshiping God like, like Job's wife? Do we stop pursuing holiness and maturity? Do we stop evangelizing? No. I mean, all the more so, you might say our, our mission is intensified in times of crisis. What else really matters? And so when people ask me, like, well, what are we supposed to do now? I basically tell them just, The same thing, just keep doing what God has given you to do. Now, that being said, I know it's not quite that simple because the way in which we do things has changed drastically. God has not changed. Our mission has not changed. But, you know, all the ways we regularly live for Christ as Christians has been turned upside down. That is true. 
I mean, take worship. Granted, our worship should be continual, but you are used to a Sunday morning gathering as, as a primary expression of your worship. But that, that's gone right now. What are you going to do? How will you worship? And also your walk, Bible studies, small groups, children's ministry. They're all on hiatus right now. So many means of your spiritual input have been taken away. How will you grow? And then what about your witness? What if you aim to evangelize at at the farmer's market? That's not happening right now. What will you do? And so quite a lot has changed when it comes to our daily routines. And those changes have impacted how we as Christians go about our mission. But do not let this deter you. As the saying goes, you know, when one door closes, another one opens. Or as some have said, when, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And historically, that is how we've seen God work. God often uses calamity to create opportunities, new opportunities for his purposes to be accomplished. This is something we need to see and embrace and not be afraid of. Now, I know change is hard for a lot of people. When people lose that which is familiar, they start to worry about the unknown. And many can sink into a type of fear and panic, so paralyzed by what might happen, what might be. That's entirely the wrong way to be thinking about our current crisis with this pandemic, the outbreak. I mean, just the opposite, because you have an eternal perspective, right? And your mission hasn't changed, well, then you should be instead focusing on, on and finding and seeing all the new opportunities to serve God as they unfold before you. I mean, let these times pull you way out of your comfort zone where you, you're looking for and you're not hiding from new ways to worship, to walk, and to witness. I mean, what else are we supposed to do? As Christians, we don't have the option of hiding in a bunker. I mean, the Our mission is not self-preservation. We've died to self in Christ. We live now for the glory of God. And that means even when disaster strikes, we have work to do. There's still much for us to do. And so this morning, I want to help you see this. We will, again, we'll resume our study in Colossians in due time. But right now, I see a tidal wave of opportunities to, to glorify God, to serve others, to witness to the lost that have emerged in our pandemic crisis. And pastorally, I want you to see these as well. So much good can come from this not good time. And I don't want you to waste this time. And so this trial is real. And though many of you might be suffering, you might have real hardship to face in the days ahead. But at the same time, God is presenting us with a unique opportunity to further his purposes, we should take it. So here's what I want to do this this morning with our time. It's fairly simple. You know, first, I just want to establish how God regularly turns calamity into an opportunity for his purposes. He's just in that business as the sovereign ruler of the world. He does it all the time. We need to be convinced of that, convicted. This is just this how our God operates. And then second, I, I want to show you how our current calamity can be similarly used for God's 
purposes. It's going to be largely applicational in that, that second part, but it's very important for us not to waste the unique opportunities to serve God. They're just being laid at our doorstep during this time. You might not know that. You might not think like that, but hopefully by the end, you will. So let's begin, and we'll start with this. You know, first, how God turns calamity into opportunity. How God turns calamity into opportunity. We can turn to dozens of passages at this point, but I just want to highlight three in particular. And hopefully this will be enough just to, to show you and start establishing this pattern. It's just, just what God does. He's simply in the business of taking that which is not good and, and turning it good. He will turn calamity into an opportunity to further his purposes for this world, be that for glory, for growth, or for the gospel. And so first, take your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings 19, I'm sure that's the first place you thought of as well. 2 Kings 19. And we're going to start with an example of how God can turn calamity into an opportunity for the praise of his name. You know, back in 2 Kings 17, that recorded the fall of northern Israel. They had become characterized by by more wickedness and immorality and idolatry than the pagan nations around them. And so God brought upon them the curse of captivity. He warned them about it, but the Assyrians invaded from the north. They laid waste to the ten northern tribes and took them captive. And now they were coming for Judah in the south. Hezekiah was king during this time. He was one of the few good and godly kings in Judah um, in the south. But he had rebelled against the king of Assyria. He was refusing to pay him tribute. And so now the Assyrians were coming for him. They had invaded. They were going to siege Jerusalem. And once Hezekiah saw the Assyrian army, he instantly regretted his actions. And and he realized that they don't stand a chance. Imagine looking outside the walls of Jerusalem and you see an army of nearly 200,000 soldiers. And they're ready just to eliminate you. It's not even going to be a fight. They were peeling gold off the walls of the temple to try and muster up some tribute to make him leave. It wasn't going to happen this time. And then the Assyrians started taunting the soldiers of Jerusalem. They were saying things like this. This is 2 Kings 18.33. They said, has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? I mean, the Assyrians had blown through many nations. None of their gods showed up to deliver their people. And so why should Jerusalem and Israel's God be any different? And and with this, that the heart of the people melted. I mean, talk about a day of distress. They thought they were all going to die. And Hezekiah did too. But even in this great calamity, he still turned to the Lord and he cries out to the Lord in prayer. But he doesn't just pray for his own deliverance. Hezekiah called on God to act for his own name's sake. When the Assyrians were reproaching the living God. Yeah, the gods of the other nations did not deliver their people. That's true because there are no gods at all. But, But Hezekiah's 
God, Yahweh, he, he is the one true God. Would, would he really let reproach fall in his name? Listen now to Hezekiah's prayer. If you're there, you can look at verse 15 of 2 Kings 19. It says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they are not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. But now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Hezekiah was afraid, no doubt. But still, this was a prayer of just faith and trust in God and showing concern for God's name above all. God heard this prayer. God was going to answer this prayer. He did so through the prophet Isaiah. And God, through Isaiah, told the king to not fear. That the king of Assyria, he's not even going to shoot an arrow at Jerusalem. God was going to turn him back the way he came. And still, though, you wonder how. I mean, how could that be? How's that possible? The soldiers of the Assyrian army, they, they covered the land like locusts. They're like an unstoppable force. They had just blown through all the nations before. How could this be? We'll look at verse 35, still in 2 Kings 19. It says, then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. I mean, look at that. One verse. That's all we get. All it takes is one verse. And God changes the course of human history. And all it takes is, is one angel, the angel of the Lord. We don't get any more details. Just the simple fact. That's, that's enough though. That, that's all you need. God is simply putting on display himself. That he's the one true God. He made this world. That, that's, that's just nothing for God to turn back the mightiest kings of earth. It's like a a blue whale moving aside a minnow, that there's no resistance to God. But why though? Why did God do this? Why intervene? Well, God answers, he says down in verse 34, or rather up above. He says, for I will defend this city to save it. He says, for my own sake. I mean, just as Hezekiah prayed, God showed up so that all the nations might know Yahweh alone, he's the only God. He's the one true God on heaven, on earth. He's the one who made heaven and earth. I mean, was this a powerful demonstration? You ever heard anything like this? An entire army incinerated overnight. But realize this, that this powerful demonstration of God's power would not have been possible without 
calamity. There would have been no occasion for God to make his might known without the invading Assyrian army. At that time, the people only saw threat, disaster. They saw end of the world. But Hezekiah, he saw in this calamity, he saw just the glimmer of opportunity. There's an opportunity here. If God does show up, if he does choose to deliver, there's an opportunity for his name. To be made known. To be praised among the nations. And in this instance, that's precisely what God did. There's just one example, but it goes to show you that this is what God does. From the global scale to the individual scale, he can work calamity and turn it into an opportunity that his name is is magnified. It's made known. It's praised. It's just declared to be the one name of the one God. God is worthy and he will often use and orchestrate calamity for his own name's sake. And being worthy, that is only good and right. Let's now bring in a second example. This time an example of how God can turn calamity into an opportunity for the good of his people. He can take a potential disaster and turn it into the very fountainhead of his people's blessing. You really see that shine in the example of Joseph. So now you can turn back to Genesis 45. Genesis 45, you, you know the, the story of Joseph. And his story begins with immense personal calamity. I mean, first, his brothers plot to put him to death. And they eventually settle with just selling him to slavery in Egypt. And down in Egypt, Joseph prospers for a little while in Potiphar's house, but eventually he's framed for trying to have his way with Potiphar's wife. And so he's thrown in jail. He loses everything again. He he potentially faces execution. And there he remains for two years. Finally, though, God delivered Joseph. He gave Pharaoh a dream. He gave Joseph the supernatural interpretation of that dream. And Pharaoh recognized Joseph was a man of the true God, a man filled with divine wisdom. So he elevated him and made him second in the kingdom, second only to Pharaoh. I mean, talk about a reversal. Joseph went from the very bottom to the very top overnight. But that's not the lesson. God was doing way more than simply reversing the fortunes of one man. You see, in that dream that God gave Pharaoh, he revealed that And pretty soon, a devastating famine was going to come on the land. At first, there's going to be seven years of plenty. An abundance of food would come. But after that, there was going to be seven years of famine. But Joseph, being made overseer of the land, he used his wisdom to build storehouses during those seven years of of plenty. And and they they stored up an abundance, a super abundance of food that they might not starve. And so when the famine came and it did come, the people of Israel or of Egypt rather did not perish. And think of all the personal calamity that fell upon Joseph, but you see how God turned that into this opportunity for Joseph himself to be the means of preserving thousands of people alive during a famine. But that's still not all because God also used 
Joseph's calamity, everything that happened to him, God also turned that into an opportunity for Joseph to also bless and preserve alive God's covenant people, Israel. Joseph's brothers, the sons of Isaac, they were also hit by the famine. People were starving in the land of Canaan. So Isaac told his sons to go down to Egypt and buy some food. And what do you know? They just happened to run into their long lost brother, Joseph. They did not recognize at first that Joseph could have exacted revenge on them. I mean, he was second to Pharaoh. He, he could do anything, but he didn't. He forgave his brothers. He gave them food and he blessed them. I mean, why and how? Think about all the, the calamity Joseph suffered, all of his suffering, the, the injustice. They wronged him. They did evil. And that's true. But you see, Joseph, likewise, was, was looking at things from that bigger perspective. He finally realized here what God was doing in his life. He understood that God had sovereignly orchestrated all of the calamity that came upon him so that he might be the one to preserve the lives of his brothers and God's covenant people. If you're in Genesis 45, look at verse 5. This is Joseph explaining to his brothers how he sees the situation. Verse 5, he says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. You notice three times, Joseph says, you did not send me here. God sent me here. Now, don't misunderstand, like they did the deed. They sold them to slavery. They, they will bear the guilt for their evil. But Joseph knew God was sovereignly directing his steps. Why? Well, now he knows that to put him in a place like this, to be the one to preserve the lives of God's covenant people. And that has far-reaching implications. I mean, after all, God had made an unconditional promise to bless Abraham and his descendants and make them a nation forever. In addition, the, the ultimate seed of Abraham, a Messiah would come who would deliver God's people forever. But all those promises would have failed if Joseph's brothers starved in Canaan. And there's even more going on here, but this all, or rather all this goes to show that it's not hard for God to take calamity, injustice, famines, and use them for good. And turn them into opportunities for, for the greater good. And oftentimes that greater good involves the blessing and preservation of his people. I mean, don't you see, God is big. He's sovereign. He's wise. Thankfully, he's good. He's doing more than you realize with everything that happens, more than you or I could compute. What you need to know and rest in those is God works calamity into opportunity very often for the good of his people. It's like Joseph said at the end, 
to his brothers. Genesis 50 verse 20. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Well, let's squeeze in one last example here. You can go to the New Testament now. Go to Acts chapter 6. One more. We've seen how God can turn calamity into an opportunity for worship, for the greater praise of his name. We've also seen how God can turn calamity into an opportunity for the growth and blessing of his people. Now let's give an example of how God can turn calamity into an opportunity for the spread of the gospel, leading to the salvation of many. And eternally speaking, what's more important than that? So Acts 6, you've got the early church just starting in Jerusalem. Over 5,000 have already been saved, calling on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The church has begun. Then Acts 6 tells us about one man in particular, Philip, or rather Stephen. Philip comes later. Stephen, described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And he went about preaching the gospel, defending the truth, showing Jesus as the Christ. And the other Jews in Jerusalem, though, that they didn't believe this. They, they still were not believing in Jesus. They hated Jesus. Acts 6 verse 10, though, says they, they couldn't cope with the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. They couldn't hang with him. They couldn't debate. He kept just taking them down, demonstrating Jesus really is the Messiah. And so what do they do? Well, like they did with Jesus, they just resort to attacking him. Look at verse 11. It says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They falsely accuse Stephen of all sorts of things, and they drag him before the Jewish council for blasphemy, for, for simply believing in Jesus. They wanted to put him to death. So Stephen gives his defense. It's recorded in Acts 7 now. And he mostly recounts the history of Israel. But the point he makes is that, you know, when you think about it, most generations of Israel, they were actually wicked and unbelieving. And then he he bridges the, the context to his own generation, basically says, and so are you guys. You guys just killed the Messiah. Go to Acts 7. Look how he condemns them. Look at verse 51. Acts 7.51, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Yet they really didn't like that. They did not like hearing that. And so instead of contending with his words, they rushed at him. They they dragged him out of the city and they proceeded to stone him to death. And Stephen is recorded in Acts as the first martyr of the church. Guilty of simply witnessing the good news of Jesus Christ. He would not be the last. 
But talk about a personal calamity. I think I mentioned last week, but if you think you know fear and panic living through these troubled times, it's really nothing compared to an angry mob dragging you out of town, picking up stones the size of your fist, hurling them at you with the intent to kill. That's fear and panic. That, that's calamity. And the calamity that befell Stephen, it actually sparked a much greater persecution. Now go to Acts chapter 8, look at verse 1. It mentions that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, Stephen. And then it says, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Down in verse 3, it says, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This is how the first great persecution of the church began. The Jews in Jerusalem had turned against these new Christians. This is not a natural disaster like an earthquake that kind of affects everyone. This was a targeted persecution of followers of Jesus. Many were arrested, families were separated, and some would be put to death. This persecution was not good. This was unjust. This was evil. And so you might ask, why would God allow this? What good could possibly come from this? Well, a lot, actually. I mean, don't forget, Jesus promised his followers persecution. They hated the master. What do you think they're going to do to his followers? We don't have to fear. God will be faithful to preserve the souls of his people. Here on earth, though, God sovereignly allowed this calamity to befall the early church for at least one explicit reason. I'm sure there are countless more, but we have one explicit reason in the text This was God's way of forcing the gospel to leave Jerusalem and start spreading over the earth. And back in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus told the apostles that they would be his witnesses where? Well, starting in Jerusalem, but then also Judea and Samaria, and then even the remotest parts of the earth. And Christ told them to go. But To date, the church was isolated in Jerusalem. They they were like self-quarantining in Jerusalem. They were not going. They were not taking the gospel out. That was going to change. Notice the indicators in the text. Back in chapter 8, verse 1. Because of this persecution now, what happened? It says the believers were scattered. That's an important word, scattered. Where were they scattered? It says throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Hey, that's exactly where Jesus told them to go next. The apostles stay behind as the pillars of the mother church in Jerusalem. But many other witnesses go out that day. And those who go out now that they're scattered to Judea and Samaria, what do they start doing immediately? Well, look at the very next verse, verse 4. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And you keep reading the rest of the chapter. Here you will hear of Philip who went out and preached to the Samaritans. And countless came to believe in Jesus. The world was going to be turned upside down. 
And that was only going to continue. But it all started with calamity. You know, some in the church back then may have been tempted to think of this persecution as like the end of the world. This is the worst possible thing that could happen. But not to God. He was going to use this as an opportunity for global evangelism. On the human level, yeah, that's going to involve some discomfort and suffering and persecution for God's people. Some of them may even die. They'll go to heaven. Not such a bad fate. But the result would be the worst, or rather the harvest of souls. And with, with eternal salvation at stake here, I mean, is, if that's really true, is that worth it? I mean, if you have an eternal perspective, it is. Like I said earlier, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, the goal of your life is no longer self-preservation. The goal is not even the prosperity of self. And following Jesus, you've denied self. He's redeemed you. You live for him now. You live for his agenda, his mission. Whether that costs you a little discomfort or your very life, what's that to you? Your life is not even yours anymore. He bought it. You've died. He owns your life. We wouldn't have it any other way. That's the best possible thing. It's the way of the master. It may involve a cross, but next comes a crown. His is the way of eternal life, reward, and joy. And for now, though, it's important that you simply become convinced that, that God's in control. He knows what he's doing. He's doing that which is right. And he even uses calamity as an opportunity for the praise of his name, for the growth of his people, and for the spread of his gospel. So will you just trust him? I'm going to trust him to do this. I I can't even see it all. It's too big for me, but I'm going to trust him to do this. I'm going to trust him to do what is right. He will. And as you do trust him, then it's time for you to, to put on this biblical perspective of calamity and focus more on seeing the opportunities as they unfold in front of you that you might seize them. Why don't we do that now? Let's focus now on the second part, number two, how God can turn our calamity into opportunity. First, we looked at how God can, in general, and how he has worked calamity into opportunity. But let's let's get on the specific, our own day, how God can turn our present calamity into opportunity. Hindsight's 20-20, we know that. I mean, in the siege of Jerusalem... The soldiers, they just couldn't see how God was going to turn this for his glory. And in the famine, the the brothers of Joseph, they had no idea how God would turn this for their preservation and blessing. And in the early church persecution, they just had no idea how God would, would turn this for global evangelism. Only after the fact did God's purposes become clear. Still though, the power of having biblical perspective is that it gives you this this little gift called foresight. We don't know the future. We're not presuming to know the future. But with the right perspective in hand, as you're trusting God to work calamity for good, it then becomes not that hard to, to forecast what God might do, what he can do. 
In fact, it's only right for God's people to, to be looking for opportunities to serve God, even in trying times. So, hey, look, we happen to be living in some trying times right now. For many, with a pandemic outbreak, with uh, lockdown measures, and this, the complete disruption of normal life, you could, you could hide in fear, or you could reflect on you know, what, what opportunities might be emerging in this very unique time. And I have some for you to consider. We're just going to scratch the surface here, but let's consider some together. And first, I want you to think about personal opportunities. This outbreak has led to isolation. Most cannot work and are forced to stay inside their homes. This has resulted in a lot of extra time on people's hands. And that, that can be a trial in its own right, but at the same time, you can find an opportunity here. You know, before, were you one of those who often said, I'm just too busy to pray. I'm just too busy to read my Bible. I'm, I'm too busy to study the scriptures. Well, I don't think you have that excuse right now. I mean, don't get me wrong. We're not trying to be insensitive and say like, hey, you just lost your job. No, don't worry. Just read your Bible. All your troubles will go away. I'm not saying that. This, this can be a very real hardship for you. But the point stands, in your personal calamity, a great good could emerge. If you redeem this time, maybe use it for, well, among many things, your, your spiritual growth. It's very hard to imagine another set of circumstances that would give so many people in the world so much free time. Of course, you'd rather work and you'd rather live as normal, but you're not in control of those circumstances right now. This kind of is what it is. But how tragic would it be if you used all this time to just watch Netflix? And that's it. I mean, th this time will not last forever. The demands of normal life, they're going to return but this could be your chance to grow stronger in your faith, to deepen your knowledge of God, to, to excel in your devotion. And think of all the great goods that can emerge just personally from this time. They might impact the rest of your life. When a soldier at war has a break from fighting, yeah, he'll use some of that time to rest. But the good soldier will use some of that time to, to prepare for the next battle, which will surely come. And you too, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, you have to see this time. At, if you have this time, this unique personal opportunity to, to grow, to be a Berean, examine the scriptures daily, dive in, what's holding you back? You should know that God's word is the primary means of our spiritual sustenance and growth. This is your chance to feast. Heed the instructions God gave to Joshua, Joshua 1, 8. He told him, the book of this law shall not depart from your mouth. We shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Secondly, I also want you to think of family opportunities. Family opportunities. God has a high view of the family. Family is the basic building block of any society. And God has tasked parents with raising up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the most important job 
in the country. But with our modern busy lives, we fall short. A 2018 study found that Americans spend an average of 37 minutes of family time each day. 37 minutes of of quality time with the family each day. The same parents describe their lives as hectic, if they had to choose one word, with long work hours and overloaded school and sports schedules, just making everything very hard, making, making family time very difficult. And Christian parents are not immune to this. But just how much time are you spending with your family, with your kids, with your spouse? Is spiritually investing in them. It's God's will that you as parents be the primary shepherds of your kids and that fathers take the lead in leading the family and family worship. And look, even if you've struggled in the past, well, see how things have changed. See maybe an opportunity. An opportunity presented to you. You likely right now do not have long work hours. Your kids are not in school and they have zero extracurriculars to attend to. I mean, even if you wanted to get away, you're not going to find a babysitter right now. You just have to face it. You are stuck at home with your kids. But you have to see that as a wonderful gift and opportunity. You have an amazing chance to foster closeness with your family, perhaps even reform the way you parent. What's your family culture like? What do you value? How do you spend your time together? You know, with work and sports out of the way, it probably took a pandemic for that to actually happen in your life. Maybe this is a chance to reorient the hard way, your priorities. Form new habits of family worship, scripture reading, prayer, devotion together. All of those habits could last long beyond this crisis. Wouldn't that be an amazing good to come out of very difficult and dark times? There's more. You just have to see the opportunities and then take them. Thirdly now, just two more. Consider church opportunities. Church opportunities. Church, it's not a building. It's not an event. It's people, the people of the Lord followers of Christ. Your local church is like your little spiritual family. And granted, not being able to gather corporately is a serious hardship. It's kind of like a a spiritual famine because God intended to use the church as one of the primary means of our spiritual sustenance. That being said, opportunities for worship and fellowship and edification, they still abound. Technology can be a blessing or a curse, You might as well use it for good, though. From FaceTime to the app no one even heard about three weeks ago, Zoom. The technology is everywhere that allows you to stay in contact with your church family. Take advantage of it. Some of you might find this enables you to be more connected to your church body than you were before. For example, maybe you've never once attended one of our, our Sunday morning before service prayer meetings. But now that we're going to be doing them online through Zoom, maybe you will. Maybe that that habit will form. Maybe you'll become a regular prayer warrior there on Sunday mornings before the service. That would be a good thing. Also, you know, consider all the one another commands of Scripture that we've been looking at at our church recently. There are still plenty of outlets for them, many of which did not exist before. They, They can only exist in a time such as this. 
take encourage one another. Maybe you were one who in the past, you kind of limited your interaction with other believers to just Sunday mornings. That's the only time you interacted with other Christians. But now that's gone. But, but perhaps it's time, I'm going to suggest something pretty crazy here, pretty, pretty radical, but maybe it's time to, to pick up the phone and actually like call another Christian from your church midweek. I know I, I'm, I'm kind of pushing it here, but like midweek, you could actually speak to someone, encourage them, pray for them. Maybe you've never spoken to some of our seniors at church. This is your opportunity. You have the excuse. Give them a call. Read a scripture to them. Ask how they're doing. Just how can I pray for you and pray for them? Speaking of our seniors, what about serve one another and show hospitality to one another? It can still be quite a challenge for some seniors and high-risk members to to venture the crowds, get to the market, buy uh, buy supplies, but you could offer to, to help them. I will go, I'll stand in that line for an hour for you. Tell me what you need. I'll go serve you. In fact, I'll even pay for you. Along those lines, think benevolence. Think bearing the burdens of others. With this outbreak calamity, many have and will lose their jobs. And some of our members will face some harsh realities. But perhaps like Joseph, the Lord has orchestrated your life that you might be the one to preserve many people around you. I mean, what an amazing opportunity you might have to to deeply impact others around you who are in great need. This is a strange time where we're bound by social distancing. But you realize God can work through this so that at the end, our church could be closer together. Right now, we're, we're arbitrarily separated and distanced, but this could be an opportunity for a church family and for the body of Christ to become closer than ever before. But let's not stop there. Let's finish. Let's add one more. What about neighbor opportunities that can emerge from this time? I'll quickly read Galatians 6, 9, and 10, where Paul says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. There's a sense in which we will first seek to meet the needs of our our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, but not to the neglect of of those in the world, to help them, to witness to them. There's a good chance some of you have not even spoken ever to your physical neighbors, like your next door neighbors and where you live. But look, this is your chance. Go talk to them. Go speak to them. Go serve them. Go help them. You know, six feet away, of course, but go meet their needs. You could hide in your house all day or you could be different. Yeah, we're going to abide by social distancing, but that doesn't mean you have to be distant per se. Talk to your neighbors. Look for ways to show them the love of Christ, which is all about just laying down self, laying down even comfort to serve others. For Sean 3.17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You know, I wonder as many of you respond differently to this crisis. You retain peace and joy. You focus more on serving others than yourself. I wonder how many gospel opportunities will emerge 
for you. As you serve your neighbors during this hard time, you might gain this open door to tell them why you serve. Namely that, well, Christ came and first served us. He laid down his life for us that we might be forgiven and given eternal life. And those, those witnessing opportunities might be the greatest good to come out of this calamity. Look, there's nothing like death to humble the proud. Man lives in pride and rebellion against his creator, not recognizing him, thinking he's invincible. But it just takes a little brush with death, kind of like a pandemic, to humble the proud. But that's a good thing because humility is a prerequisite for calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. Don't waste this time. We do not fear, but there's going to be many around you who are afraid, who are afraid of death, who wonder what comes next to ask about the meaning of life. This pandemic just might be the means to till the soil of their heart that they are now ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. For the Savior has come, he's died, and he rose again to overcome death itself, to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who believe. Will you be ready for that moment? Will you seize that opportunity? Will you witness Christ to those around you? I pray that God would use this calamity to, in a sense, scatter us all. To take us out of our comfort zones that the gospel may go out from our lips more than it ever did before. God will be faithful to do this. This is just what he does. He turns calamity into opportunity. But also know he, he does this and he works through faithful servants who see those opportunities and, and seize those opportunities, who work for him. And so may that be us during this time. May we simply be found faithful to just keep living for Christ, no matter what's going on in the world around us, looking for and taking all these opportunities to glorify God, to grow, and to get the gospel out. Let's do that together, and let's pray. Our good Father in heaven, we, we pray for, for the church during this hour, this time of crisis. There's a lot of hardship and suffering going on in the world. Even in our church, people are losing their jobs. Some may get sick. Some will perish around the world. That's already happening. These are dark times. We don't, we don't lessen them. We, we don't take that for granted. There's real hardship here. But it's only good and right for your people to see opportunity in the midst of the valley. There's a chance. You, you work sovereignly to turn bad to good. There's a chance to see your name praised. Among the nations, there's a chance here for your body, the body of Christ, the church, to grow up, to grow closer together. There's a chance for the gospel to go out in ways it, it never would have before. Just open our eyes to see it, Lord. Help us not to live in fear, but, but boldly in faith, that we might be more concerned with how, how do we live for you? How do we keep on serving Christ, even though we're living in very different times? Build up your church. And encourage us. Help us to keep going and simply continue serving Christ our Lord and Savior, no matter what comes. He's our hope, our refuge and strength. And keep us encouraged in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.